Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another Pain Talk podcast. Just a few corrections from our previous podcast before we dive in. My comparison of delayed hypersensitivity in the immune system and priming of the nervous system got a little bit, shall we say, muddled. Just to clarify, T lymphocytes do not prime the nervous system. They prime the immune system. It is the glial cells or the non-neuronal cells, uh, which are primarily in the nervous system that prime the nervous system at the direction of the higher sites in our brain. Sites like the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the reticular activating system, and the cortex of the brain. So glial cells are really important, and they are the most common cells found in the central nervous system. We're going to get into a podcast at some point around this. These glial cells are the drivers of the neuroinflammation, and the interactions they have are very complex. So it is very complicated, but it is incredibly cool stuff, especially when we begin to explore forces that can drive the transition of pain from acute to chronic. And more importantly, how we can prevent or minimize that transition. So this is really what we want to do, is we want to minimize the risk to the patient developing persistent pain. So where I kind of pulled this in around the priming was my understanding of the disruptive pain experience. For many, many years, uh, when I would talk to patients about pain, uh, we talked about when pain became persistent for them in their life, Uh, That period of time when pain became persistent, I described as a disruptive pain experience, when in fact that was the second hit. The priming occurred much sooner, uh, much uh, more time before actually the disruptive pain experience. So, but it is an important question to be asking patients, when did pain become persistent in their life? It really helps them kind of put together some timeline about why this has happened to them, maybe explore some factors or forces that may have contributed to the development of the persistent pain or that primed uh, that disruptive pain experience. So it is very, very helpful. So some of these early life stressors or primers that we we understand um, that help to prime the the glial cells um, are many, many different things. We talk about adverse childhood experiences. There can be early life stressors. There can be separation at a very young age of a child from the mother or even an injury that might have occurred during those early, early years. Uh, so these, uh, these events, which we often refer to as first hit events, prime that glia to over-respond. And so we understand that some of these early adverse life events uh, create this long-term heightened glial reactivity that can lead to greater sensitivity to future harmful stimuli. So that's often referred to as that two-hit hypothesis. It's, it's really interesting. I find it very interesting. So there needs to be more study in this area. There's no question. But it is opening a door around possible treatments, but also strategies that we can start to implement to prevent the development of persistent pain. So clear as mud, lots of information. So today we're going to talk about pain classification systems in this podcast, and there are many. I really just want to focus on the three most common The first one is called pain mechanism, which is really the physiological standard of how pain is classified. This is where we use the term nociceptive, which is primarily talking tissue-based, and neuropathic pain, which is primarily looking at the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. There's also uh, pain intensity, 
mild, moderate, severe, and the World Health Organization uses pain intensity uh, in its ladder to help aid in decision-making uh, from healthcare providers about medication choices, in particular around analgesics, uh, opiate analgesics or non-opiate analgesics. And then finally, the third uh, pain classification I want to talk about is pain duration. So this is where we look at acute. There is some subacute or chronic, but I'm going to stick mostly to acute and chronic. So most of us would agree that pain classification systems can be helpful, but they can also make pain assessment and pain management challenging. And some classification systems can even contribute to stigma and over-medicating. And a great example is pain duration. So pain duration is really interesting, especially when we look at an emergency department, when patients are actually coming into the emergency room and asked to give a numeric uh, evaluation or uh, interpretation of what the pain that they're experiencing, oftentimes that pain intensity can go off the scale. So normally we use a pain scale from 0 to 10. It's not uncommon for patients with chronic pain to often say that their pain intensity is 15 on 10. Often, especially in the emergency room, they're actually presenting with what we call chronic pain flare-ups. And these flare-ups are important to understand. What we also need to recognize is that that 15 on 10 is truly an accurate description of what they're experiencing, but it doesn't always tell us what's going on in their tissue. And this is where the conflict comes from. So if we were trying to medicate that patient uh, from a 15 on 10 down to 2 on 10, often this will lead to over-medicating and sedation. When we get into chronic pain, we're going to talk about that in terms of how our goals of therapy are very different depending on whether we're, tr we're managing acute pain versus chronic pain. We also can get the classic eye roll when the patient comes in and they tell us that their pain is 15 on 10. And typically your nurse who's doing the triaging wants the patient to stay within that 0 to 10. And so sometimes we look at patients as if they're trying to mess with us or they may be, we think that they're maybe drug-seeking. And what I have found in my experience is that the majority of these patients are not drug-seeking. We are asking them to evaluate their pain experience using this scale to describe their intensity, and it is accurate for them. So we need to respect that, and we need to acknowledge that. So it's really important. So why is uh, the use of uh, or the complexity around pain and suffering when we're using pain scales, why is it so complex? And the important thing to understand is that pain is not just a physical experience. Uh, it is also an emotional experience, a social experience, and a spiritual experience. This is a, often described as total pain in the palliative care literature, and this was a term that was developed by Dame Cicely Saunders in the early 60s to describe the multiple facets that influence how we experience pain. When we look at the pain literature today, we often hear about the biopsychosocial model uh, to help explain pain, and it really pulls in all of these different uh, modalities. What's often different in the palliative care population is something called existential suffering. Uh, so looking at that spiritual piece, and what's important about recognizing existential suffering, and I do believe that it can occur as well in the, in the chronic pain patient, but we tend to think of it more in the palliative care of the end-of-life population is that existential suffering cannot be medicated. It requires a listening and leaning in. Um, if we medicate it, the patient is not able to work through all of those challenges that they're experiencing around their foundational beliefs. Existential suffering is a very deep topic, but it's a really important topic when we're looking at overall suffering in patients. So how I overcome this, uh, or I try to help 
um, some of our nurses bring in compassion and empathy for that patient is to just to switch their view of pain scales and see them as actually suffering scales. So that 15 on 10 really is 15 on 10 suffering. So pulling in all aspects of, of all factors that influence how we experience pain allows us to step back and understand that this, these are m- many factors that are contributing to why the patient is feeling the way they are, and it allows us maybe to pull in with more empathy and compassion. So view pain scales as suffering scales. Just further around the bio, biological psychosocial model, it is a really widely accepted uh, model to look at pain. So it pulls in the social aspects, the psychological factors that interact with brain process to ind- influence how an individual feels and how they experience pain. So it describes pain as a multidimensional dynamic interplay of physiological, psychological, and social factors that influence each other. And it is these these inter, uh, interplay of all these different factors that lead to chronic and com- a complex pain syndrome as well. It allows us to have a more holistic approach to pain, either acute or chronic, and when we pull in all these different uh, aspects of what contributes to our experience of pain. So we'll, divide, we'll dive into this a little bit further when we discuss pain intensity and the use of pain scales. So does it matter if the patient is presenting with uh, acute pain or chronic pain? Uh, does it change my approach or does it change how I might provide guidance to that patient and, and how I might help them manage their suffering? Well, I would argue that it does, and here's why. So our ability to differentiate acute and chronic pain clinically really matters. It matters in terms of the talking points that we're using. It also matters in terms of the pharmacology or the medications that we're choosing to help patients manage their suffering because the goals of care are very different. If I'm using pharmacology to manage acute pain, my goals of care are different. So I want that 80% pain reduction. And it's not just pharmacology that I'm going to use. And we'll talk about how we want to approach the treatment. So I want that 80% reduction, but I want to minimize sedation and improve function. In the chronic pain population, if you get a 30 to 40% reduction in pain, that's considered successful. And you want to avoid sedation uh, with this pharmacology and improve function. So generally, acute pain and chronic pain are really about function management. Pain management is important, but it really is about keeping patients mobile. Where I truly focus on pain management is usually in patients that are at the end of life. And even then, I'm concentrated uh, on trying to keep these patients as functional as possible. But this is where I need to have that conversation. Most patients who are living with life-limiting conditions want to stay active. They want to be, to be able to engage with their families and their friends and to be doing things so that they're improving the quality of their life. But at some point during that disease, uh, often the disease itself prevents them from being active because they have such intense pain. So this is usually when we start to medicate a little bit more aggressively to get them more comfortable. So the goals of care will change in this population. The other thing that often uh, healthcare providers get confused about with respect to acute pain and chronic pain are the chronic pain flare-ups, and they often get uh, misrepresented as acute pain. We will talk about how acute pain and chronic pain flare-ups are very different. Even though the intensity can be very similar, the mechanism for both of these types of pain is very different. So what does all pain have in common? When patients experience pain, all will experience a varying degree of suffering. Our ability to listen to that patient, acknowledge that suffering is what really matters, regardless of the category or classification of pain. Whether waters can get muddled are the next steps. 
So how do we help patients find the tools or the habits and behaviors that we can help them to manage their suffering? So they're the habits and behaviors that we give our patients, but they're also the habits and behaviors that they bring to us, uh, especially when they're trying to find calm in a very chaotic pain state. So helping them understand what habits and behaviors are going to build resiliency with them, that means the habit and behaviors that are not just going to help them in the moment, they're going to help them in the long term to live those lives of connection and purpose that we all want. So are they using tools or habits and behaviors that are helping them move forward in their life, keeping them connected to the people and things that matter, so building that resiliency, or are they using tools and habits and behaviors that are keeping them stuck in maladaptive coping, just getting them through the moment until the next flare-up? And I often talk about these as being vulnerability forces. So the things that are actually keeping them stuck in maladaptive coping. There is a process, though, of, uh, and this is what I do sometimes with patients, I, I get them to tell me what they think are the important factors that are helping them manage their pain. So the ones that are helping them move them forward and what they think might be holding them back. And then we can look at whether or not they're ready to kind of uh, dive into some of those habits and behaviors if they're open to changing those behaviors so that we can help to build more momentum to, to getting them to move forward. So let's come back to the classification system. We kind of got distracted there. So we're just going to look at pain mechanism. So pain mechanism is the physiological standard of how we classify pain. And I'm going to really simplify this. I don't want to make it too complicated. So the two mechanisms that we talked about were nociceptive, which is the most common type of pain that we see, and there's neuropathic. So nociceptive is primarily tissue-based um, and you can sort of further divide this into an inflammatory nociceptive mechanism or a non-inflammatory. And I'm really keeping this very simple. So an example of an inflammatory nociceptive mechanism would be something like an active Crohn's disease or an acute injury or a fracture. Non-inflammatory nociceptive mechanisms would be things like degenerative disc disease, degenerative arthritis. When we look further into neuropathic uh, mechanisms, you can look at central and peripheral so when I think of central mechanisms, I'm thinking of multiple sclerosis, uh, uh, thinking of strokes, fibromyalgia, which is a pure centrally mediated uh, mechanism for ne uh, central neuropathic pain syndrome uh, related to chronic pain. Peripheral would be uh, something like acute shingles. So when we look at the mechanism of how pain is communicated, so looking at the neurotransmitters or the messengers and how they travel through the pain pathway, the important thing to remember is that regardless if the mechanism is neuropathic or nociceptive, these messengers are very similar. So let's just review for a second. So pain is triggered by a noxious stimulus. It can be an injury, an illness, surgery, or it can be an unknown trigger. So that noxious stimulus activates these specialized nerve endings called nociceptors. The cell bodies of these nociceptors, often referred to as first order, are located outside the spinal cord in the dorsal root ganglia, and they extend their dendritic processes to the periphery through these fibers, and these fibers are both myelinated and unmyelinated. So the neurotransmitters are interesting, so you've got glutamate, and I think of glutamate as the gas, so it literally uh, increases pain intensity. And then you have GABA, which is actually the break, so this slows down the nerve impulse. Um, so these neurotransmitters are really uh, quite interesting and quite important. So the fibers enter the spine through the dorsal root and synapse in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So this is what we call the second order uh, neurons. And then they move through the ascending pathway to the brain stem and then the higher levels of the brain. We talked about that earlier, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the reticular activating system, 
and the cortex of the brain. So it's these higher level sites that bring the complex emotional feelings. So the complex emotional feelings come through the thalamus and the limbic system. There's alteration in sleep patterns, the reticular activating system, and the hypothalamus. I always tell patients with persistent pain that often sleep is very difficult because the brain is trying to make you pay attention because it feels that something is wrong. So it becomes very complex around sleep. And then there's this stress or survival response, which comes through the hypothalamus that pain can evoke. So these higher level sites become really important. And we'll talk about that uh, as we go along, because oftentimes we think these higher level sites are actually reacting to the pain stimulus. But in chronic pain and in some chronic pain syndromes, especially syndromes like fibromyalgia, these higher level sites are actually what start to take control. Um, over the mechanism of how pain is communicated. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting when you start to see these changes. So these higher level sites trigger some biological process that can then amplify or inhibit the pain signal that the brain will ultimately interpret. So there's lots of different communication that goes on. We'll get into how the glial cells can be important in this, um, but we're not going to spend a lot of time there right now today. So the filter, the, so the, the uh, higher sites start to filter and process information. And then they send that information through back through the brainstem, through the descending pathway or the non-adrenergic pathway, where information is further modified. So the descending pathway has two neurotransmitters that become important, noradrenaline. So noradrenaline uh, has the ability to modify pain. And what it does, it actually decreases pain. And then you have serotonin, which can actually work either way. It can increase pain or it can decrease pain, depending on the information that's coming from the higher sites. So the important thing, though, is that uh, as the body is trying to protect, especially with acute pain, because the role of this pain system is to tell us when something's wrong, but also to protect that tissue until it heals. So as tissue heals, this pain signaling should weaken and eventually shut off. However, this is where it gets complicated. So if the threat or perception of harm continues, the structure and function of that nervous system continues to be shaped and reshaped through something called plasticity, which starts to alter the accuracy and intensity of information that's sent back to the brain. This plasticity or neuroplasticity is fundamental to our understanding of both the persistence of pain in some pain syndromes and the mechanism of action of some different pain treatment modalities. So it's really complicated, uh, but it's really fascinating. So the ascending pathways, just to, to reiterate, the neurotransmitters and neuromodulators primarily are glutamate, uh, which helps to enhance pain, so it accelerates pain. I always think of it as the gas. And then you have GABA, which is gamma-MEO-butyric acid, which has an inhibitory effect. In other words, it reduces pain. It sort of puts on the brakes. So both these neuromodulators transfer nociceptive impulses through the neurons to the spinal cord, which are then passed on to the brain through the ascending pathway, where they are processed and filtered in the higher centers. So once the impulse has been processed and filtered in the higher centers, which include the limbic system and the midbrain structures, down to the brainstem, the descending pathways simultaneously modify pain perception through the noradrenergic pain regulation system. The two important neuromodulators in this adrenergic pain regulation system are noradrenaline and serotonin. So noradrenaline reduces pain, serotonin can actually increase or decrease pain depending on the messaging that is coming from these higher centers. Once filtered, they are then transferred to the spinal cord dorsal horn at the level of the incoming pain signal. So this is a full circle kind of transmission that starts to happen. 
So the next pain classification is pain intensity, and primarily we measure pain intensity through pain scales. And there are many ways that we can measure pain intensity or the pain experience of the patient. So there are scales that can measure uh, pain intensity in nonverbal patients, and typically that would be an ICU patient that's intubated or patients that have cognitive impairment, so our Alzheimer's patients. The most common ones we use are the number scale, 1 to 10, uh, and then the facial recognition, which we tend to use more in children. So these are very common scales that we use. And so some of the challenges of pain scales we already mentioned, but I'm just going to reiterate that is the big thing is that they can contribute to stigma, especially in the chronic pain population. Uh, they can contribute to over-medicating, which we talked about. They also assume that the pain intensity, so when we're doing a pain scale, we're asking the patient to give us a, a description numerically of their pain intensity um, that we're assuming that this patient is starting at zero on 10. When in fact, if you're getting a history from a patient with persistent pain, we call it persistent pain for a reason, they are never pain-free. The average daily pain intensity that these patients live with is on average between five and six. It can vary. And so when they get these pain flare-ups, they often are going off the scale. So you're looking at 15, you're looking at 20. So their zero may be a five. So they're living with that daily intensity. The other thing that we often uh, make a mistake around is that we assume that there should be a physical correlation with the intensity of pain that the patient is experiencing. And this is a really frustrating thing for patients living with chronic pain because they don't feel believed. And often patients will say to them, you don't look like you're in pain. And we'll do that in healthcare as well. But in fact, they do have intense pain. So it's important to acknowledge whatever that number is, that that is where they are. That's, that is what the intensity of pain is that they're experiencing at that moment. So it is a subjective experience. It belongs to that patient. It is an accurate des description of what they're feeling. So what we need to know about pain scales is that they are subjective. They accurately reflect the intensity of pain the patient is experiencing. But they don't always tell us what's going on in the patient's tissue. So the patient can have severe, severe pain without anything dangerous or bad going on. And this is truly, really frustrating because they may be looking at a tissue-based problem when in fact what they have now is a central nervous system-based problem. Uh, and all their investigations are basically saying that things are unchanged. Oftentimes what happens is there becomes a focus on degenerative disease or degenerative arthritis, but it, that is not why these patients have persistent pain. Uh, so it gets, uh, gets very complicated. And we did talk about why the, uh, the number itself truly does affect how they experience it, but doesn't always tell us what's going on in the tissue. And that really has to do with pain is not just a physical experience. It's an emotional, spiritual, psychological experience. So a really interesting quote by Von Baer in his uh, article uh, in 2006, Pain Research and Management, uh, Children's Self-Reports of Pain Intensity, he says that describing pain in terms of its intensity is like describing music in terms of its loudness. So obviously we're missing different components of what expression music has. Uh, it's the same thing with pain. We're not really getting all the different pieces that are helping us to understand what that intensity really, really is. And so we need a more comprehensive approach to pain assessment. And we need to recognize that the most important thing that we can do at that moment is to acknowledge that what that patient is feeling is very real. So the other thing, just to reiterate around the biopsychosocial aspect of chronic pain, 
is that it needs to be viewed as having a key role rather than being seen as a secondary reaction to persistent pain. So the psychosocial factors play a key role and are intrinsically involved in a complex mixture of overall biopsychosocial processes that characterize pain, especially around chronic pain. So it is the higher level sites in conjunction with the biopsychosocial aspects of how we experience pain that are the drivers rather than the reaction to pain. So these higher level sites start to drive pain, uh, especially in the chronic pain patient. So the third uh, pain classification I want to look at is pain duration, so looking at time. So by definition, it's interesting. So we can look at acute pain from zero to three months. Some people say zero to six months. I think zero to three months is really important because we want to start doing things earlier rather than later. So the longer we leave patients uh, to develop habits and behaviors that may hold them back, the more difficult it is to change those, right? We're creatures of habits and behaviors. And these patients are just trying to find their way through life. They're trying to find what works. Chronic pain, by definition, is usually pain that's been there longer than three months. But there is a huge big difference between acute and chronic pain. Uh, We're not really sure when acute pain becomes chronic. It's important to understand that transition, and we need more study in this area because we do want to prevent that transition from actually happening. So acute pain is more about tissue damage or potential damage triggered by an injury, illness, surgery, or unknown. The normal kind of progression is that pain intensity reaches a peak, and then pain intensity usually diminishes and usually comes down to zero on 10 with three months, in three months. So it, acute pain has the acute warning function of physiological nociception. nociception. So it is a physiological process. Uh, zero to three months is usually the time frame. Uh, chronic persistent pain starts the same way, but these patients never come back to normal. Persistent pain is more about the central nervous system. So this is pain that persists beyond the expected time of healing that lacks the acute warning function of physiological nociception. So it has no purpose. It's actually pathological in nature. It doesn't serve a purpose for humans to have persistent pain. What's also important to recognize is what we call a chronic pain flare-up. And what a chronic pain flare-up is an increase in the baseline pain of the patient that can last hours to days. So this is where they go from a baseline of 5 on 10, and they can increase to a base a, a higher level to 15 on 10 or 20 on 10. So it's very difficult. This often gets confused with acute pain. But by definition, uh, when you examine these patients and if you investigate these patients, there is nothing new. So it's not caused by a new condition or a progression of a pre-existing condition. So essentially, the investigations are unchanged. So it becomes important because the goals of of care that I want to do for someone with acute pain are very different than chronic pain. So my treatment goals are a little bit in terms of pharmacology, you know, 30% reduction versus acute pain. It's an 80% reduction. If I try and target 80% reduction, especially around pharmacology and chronic pain, I will cause sedation. So... I always tell patients that if we can get control of these flare-ups, so I can get the same reduction in that pain as I can from pharmacology. So if we can help them understand what's causing these flare-ups, if we can find strategies or habits and behaviors that are going to help them manage these flare-ups, I can get that same reduction in their pain. So it is frequently confused with acute pain. If we look at it in a nutshell, so the International Association for the Study of Pain describes acute pain as a normal predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus, so a noxious stimulus. So it is physiological, it is protective, it is predictive in terms of its behavior. 
Chronic pain, on the other hand, is pain without apparent biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing time, usually longer than three months. This is pathological, it is not predictive in its behavior, and it is no longer protective in its function. So acute pain is more about the tissue, chronic pain is more about what the central nervous system is doing. So we're going to stop here uh, because that's a lot of information to take in and we're going to get into acute pain in the next podcast and how uh, uh, this uh, we can look at different strategies of of managing acute pain um, and just review some of the the literature around some of the pharmacology. And I think what's really important about acute pain is also how we can identify and reduce the risk, recognizing first that initial impact that primes the nervous system for the development of chronic pain. So acute pain is an incredibly important um, area of uh, pain study that we need to understand a little bit better. We need to uh, be able to help patients transition through acute pain in a healthy way so that we can minimize the risk of the uh, initial first impact, which primes the nervous system for the development of chronic pain. So I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.